Hey, Mary Beth. I'm muted. Look at your digs. It's like dark. It's cozy. It looks cozy. Look, Mary Beth, look. There's this like flower stand that only sells dahlias and they just have like a, um, um, like a, what is it? Like a box and, and you just like pay if you're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean like a fruit stand, but like they're not really there? Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And they had these in every color in the, of the rainbow. How did you decide? It's so hard. <laughs> I don't know. Well, they're so pretty. Oh, good for you. Oh, you're so good about that. Like every now and then I buy myself flowers. Every now and then. But then I forget about it. I forget to do it. It's such a nice thing. Yeah. Have I don't you had do a good... it all the time, but I like it. I have to get some rock. Are you having a, are you like, are you enjoying yourself? Brock, you're muted. Oh, someone else. You know, I got to change my, I got to change my view here. Hi, Brock. Long time no see. How are you? Oh, good. Yeah. It's it's, nice uh, to see you. Yeah, I uh, wasn't around last week or so, but uh, climbed aboard. Yeah, welcome. That's the cool thing about Zoom, you know, like Liz is on Long Island. You're somewhere. I don't know where. And Emily's somewhere. I don't know where. (laughs) I don't even know where. And I'm somewhere. I don't know where. (laughs) Hi, Emily. Hey, gosh, look at your Long Island situation. That looks amazing. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Hi, Henrietta. Brock, I'm Emily. I don't I don't think we've met before. No, uh, yeah, I'm from Utah. I wasn't here last week. Uh, I've been working with Derek and uh, thought I'd better climb aboard. Awesome. Nice Good move. Yeah. So, Brock, yeah, where move. in Utah are you? A little rural town in eastern Utah, uh, kind of close to Boulder, about five, maybe four or five hours. And uh, But uh, it's a very small town. I, uh, it, this is my cave. <laughs> cool. Utah is so beautiful. I love that. It's, state. it's pretty, it's a pretty area and, uh, it's nice that it's quiet right now. I, uh, uh, don't have a desire to be surrounded by people. A song is important though. This is great. I was um, supposed to go to that part of Utah, um, with my daughter for spring break last year. Mm. Uh, and it got canceled. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I don't know whether anybody knows Tom Edwards. I'm fairly close to him. He's in Moab and uh, he's uh, been around for quite a while and some people know him, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of out there. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, where are you now? Oh, I'm on Long Island. I'm, I'm in Bridgehampton. Just visiting? Yeah, for a week. Oh, nice. This is my chicken coop. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Looks very nice for a chicken coop. (laughs) 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 
But it's still really rustic, which I really quite like about it. But I get here and I just, I can't think, I can't help but notice like the ridiculousness of Bedford, New York. Why? Because you don't need all that. You don't. Some people do, you know, until they don't, but some people do. (laughs) You're talking about the sizes of the houses and so forth? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm in the Hamptons, so I mean, it's crazy here. But what I mean is this particular chicken coop that I'm staying in, it's got like a little wood stove and a little, you know, like, it's just so plain and so simple and so lovely. Yeah. It just makes, you know, the the contrast is just mind-boggling. I've never been to that area, so I don't know what it's like at all. It's as fancy as you can possibly get. It's unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Um, Like, you know, like 20-bedroom homes and Uh. every, you know, just gorgeous gardens and, you know, Got it. Martha Stewart land. Yeah, she uh-huh. lives there, right? And the Clintons and... Oh, I was actually talking about the house. Oh. <laughs> they all have houses there, too. <laughs> Bedford is like that, too, but you don't... It's not as obvious in Bedford somehow. I don't know. Bedford is like a lot of old homes, and they're still on what used to be farmland, so it feels a little bit more sort of quaint, but then when you actually see it... My... Um, was my my mother-in-law used to be the head of the lower school at Ripoam Sisqua. Oh, yeah. Do you know that school? Yeah. Um, so we would visit them up there a lot. And it is, and yeah, you know, Richard Gere lives there and Bruce Willis lives there and um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And it's like, yeah, it's very posh and <laughs> nice. But, you know, like in Bedford, there's that and then there's normal-ish. That's true ish and then but uh out here <clears throat> oh my gosh yeah there's no like normal towns in the hamptons that's true no just yeah pretty though <laughs> so uh, no normal towns <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm trying to picture a normal town yeah really <laughs> yeah <laughs> What is that? Yeah. What is a normal town? <laughs> so Derek's Derek um is gonna be a little bit late today, so um No way. <laughs> really that is so unlike him. <laughs> so what did you say here, Mary Beth? Uh, seven ten start sitting. We, yeah, by seven ten start sitting. So um do you have a gong? Mary no, Beth? I have I have symbols. Yeah, so maybe that'll work, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Eileen. I'll symbol us in. Hi. How are you? <laughs> am, I mute? am I unmuted? No. Well, you're good. Good to be here. <laughs> Hi, Anne. Hi. How's it going? Great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> 
just put everyone to bed. So coming oh, out of that. So <laughs> wow, this is a bevy, bevy of quail. Are there any men in this crowd? There no. will be. Bro. I don't mind there will be. in that. I, there will be. <laughs> you know, we're the smart ones, so <laughs> there's that. We contend with that. And the beautiful ones. <laughs> there are some men among us, though. They'll be along soon. Just wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. That is not one right there. <laughs> but I'm sure Derek is a man. I realize. Brent, <laughs> too, right there. Brent, Brent, where's Brent? Yeah, Brent will be here. That's enough. Kevin, I feel very Kevin and Chris and uh, Neil. Was Neil, yeah. Was? yeah. And Ke um, no, Chris. There's what another I, Derek. Whatever. Oh yeah, there's a new. There's a new Derek. Another new Derek. Derek. Whatever happened to Pete Berganza? He moved to Portugal. Permanently? I think he moved to Portugal and found a girl. And so, okay. yeah. Okay. Well, he yeah. should be joining our class online. Well, maybe time, maybe the time difference is really awkward from there. That would be tough. Oh, yeah. Can you say hi? Yeah. Hello. Oh. Here's hi. <laughs> Hi, look at the man. You're in Hi, Sai. Hi. Hi. There's another man, Brock, right there. Yeah, right here. <laughs> yeah, Chris, Sai, and Brock, so there you go. <laughs> men count too. He's just my size. <laughs> Same hairdo. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Did you finish? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Hi, cutie. <laughs> I didn't catch that. How old is he? He's two and a half. He's yeah. big. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My husband's yeah, like six, say three, three and a half. So, your your husband's six foot six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're expecting this fella to be pretty tall. Hey, honey. Hello, Eileen. Hey, Brock. How are you? Excellent, excellent. I'm brand new. Uh, glad to see you, Chris. Another man in the group. I was just commenting. You're not the Chris I thought you were, but. It's well, okay. Another Chris somewhere. It's, I haven't seen him this time around. Yeah, Wilcox hasn't. He hasn't been to the classes yet. Usually. That's what I meant. Yes. Yeah, I figured that's who you meant. Yeah, he's in California now, Brock. Ah. So he's also contending with a you know time difference and. Did he get hitched? He did. I thought he must. He did. He got hitched. So the message is you have to leave New York for that to happen. <laughs> hmm. I think it has something to do with the Gini coefficient in New York City. What? <laughs> it's mathematical. Dis disparity, basically. 
Well, no, he found his woman here. Women are always looking up for the rich man because you you see it everywhere. You're in New York. He found he found his woman here. Oh, look! This you You guys see that? That is his wedding photograph. (laughs) (laughs) I love that suit, and I'm talking about his. (laughs) Isn't that great? Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. (laughs) Wow, he's so radical. (laughs) <laughs> they're he so is. cool they're both they're both so cool they're just both really cool people caitlin artists yes yes mm-hmm. both of them yes 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 me too all right so i'm gonna ring us in because dk said right. he would be late and he gave instructions to start sitting at 710 and it's a 711 so i feel like that's respectable all right <laughs>
Good evening. Hello. Hey, welcome everyone. Hope you're well. We have a new friend of mine joining us tonight, or a friend of mine joining us newly tonight. So let's please join me in welcoming Brock Thorne. I don't know how to change it to like have one person on the screen, but there he is. <laughs> All the way from uh, Montana, is that right? Utah. It's all the same. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I think I would, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> close enough, huh? So, maybe everybody got the uh, chance. If I got the chance, if I had a chance to get the chance. This is, I was waiting for that. Uh, <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Oh, man. I don't have the outline or the chant, but I have the chant from before. Somebody do me a favor, please, and send me the outline of the text that I sent. co-hosted so I can screen share. Who's our host this evening? Yes, uh, one second. Thank you. It shows over in the participant tab. <gasps> Ouch! <laughs> what it feels like when they make you co-host. <laughs> Okay, so now we all chant in order that all sentient beings may attain. But from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain. Buddhahood, from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain. Buddhahood, from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Majushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones and beautify our world, you are their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practiced hidden in the forest and sacred solitude. Long Chenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trime Ozer, stainless light, at your feet I pray. Grant your blessings so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. It's sort of like there's an echo, right? 
Cool. So tonight we begin the precious treasury of philosophical systems by the omniscient Long Chenpa. There's a, there's a few dudes in the history of uh, Tibetan Buddhism that are known as the omniscient one. There's not too many. Tsongkhapa, Long Chenpa. Can't really think of other ones. Maybe, maybe sometimes Guru Rinpoche, but anyone. Way it's a pretty extreme epithet. So we have the this uh, wonderful book, the precious treasury of uh, philosophical systems. And let's see if somebody was able to send me the outline. You're probably wondering why I'm so... Oh, thank you, Lori. So, just uh, briefly to go through the table of contents, which I mistakenly didn't circulate for last class. Here's a summary version of it, and uh, Liz has great, graciously been helping, helped me tremendously in creating a detailed one, which I'll circulate soon. I just want to fiddle with it. But this is very helpful, this table of contents. And it's like we have three different books just in case you were wondering, or, or maybe four different types of literature in this one book. Um, it's sort of known for being a, 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 and talked about as being a presentation of the tenets of the different schools of Buddhism. And we see that here, the approaches in the philosophical systems. We see the non-Buddhist systems, their tenets, see the superiority of the Buddhist systems, of course. The Mayan approach, the Mahayana approach, sort of overview, and then we have the Chittamatra, mind only, and then the two Madhyamakas, Svatantraka and Madhyamaka. We don't have uh, self-emptiness or other emptiness division at this point in time, which we'll talk about when we get to those chapters. Secondly, we have a uh, text that's like a, a lamrim. Lamrim is a Tibetan word that means gradual stages. It means a, a presentation of the gradual stages of the path to enlightenment. It talks about what do we do to practice? What is the path of practice? And we see that in, famously in the Jewel Ornament by Gampopa and Tsongkhapa's uh, great stages of the of the path and his middle and his small. He, he wrote three different versions of the stages of the path. And 
Pacho Rinpoche's words, uh, my perfect teacher, and so forth. But here we have uh, uh, one version by Long Chenpa. He has another very, uh, very long version of the Stages of the Path text that's being translated and will hopefully someday soon appear in English. Hinayana approach of Shravaka's Pratyeka Buddhas and then the Bodhisattva approach, talking about the uh, Buddha nature, the spiritual but potential, and then cultivating bodhicitta, giving rise to bodhicitta, the main aspect of the Mahayana path, and then the five stages of the path, and the result, the three kayas, and uh, timeless awareness, and then the path of no more learning. Uh, all, all of this is the path of no more learning. Sometimes you can highlight it, sometimes you can't. It depends on mostly on the weather, I think. The weather is too nice today. There you go. Path of no more learning. And then the third type of book we have here is a presentation of the Vajrayana. And in some sense, this is a, a, another an extension of the tenets, a presentation of the tenets of the different schools. Uh, and he does go through the different uh, sort of traditions of Vajrayana, the Sarma, I talked about last week as being the new schools that developed after the persecution. It includes uh, the Kagyu, the Sakya, and now the Galupa. It's the newest of the of the new schools. Traditionally, uh, the other new school is the Kadampa of Atisha, which dissolved as a separate school and merged into Kagyu and uh, Geluk. And then we have in the Nyingma presentation of the tenets, we have outer and inner tantras, outer being uh, the lower tantras, that's similar to the lower tantras and the Sarma tradition. But the inner tantras is different than the than the presentation in the Sarma tradition. The inner tantras includes these uh, Nyingma yogas, Maha, Anu, and Ati. And then a very profound presentation of Ati yoga, uh, the, the uh, practice or the path, rather. Not, not the practice instructions, but the aspects of Ati yoga. And then what he calls the Vajra heart essence, which is the innermost essence of the Ati yoga tradition which is what uh, Long Chenpa is famous for having sort of um, not created, but sort of brought forth as a, as a separate division of the most uh, exalted or ultimate level of the Nyingma tradition and a presentation of that. So it's a little bit like a, a, a tenet system, but it's really more of a general presentation of the the uh, meaning and uh, nuances of Tantra. And the last part, the last sort of separate book or type of material that's included in this book is this really interesting, the first couple of chapters, the Buddha and the Buddha's teaching. It's almost like he's a, uh, he's uh, taking a scholarly look at the history of Buddhist development the development of the Buddhist tradition and uh, 
uh, acknowledging and recounting for us the different approaches to to uh, who was the Buddha and what were his teachings that have uh, evolved in the world system. And it's uh, sort of a, a type of interpretive scheme that uh, it's very curious to see coming from someone sort of within the tradition. And this is this is a specialty of the of the Tibetan tradition is that they coming at the uh, end of the trajectory of the development of Buddhism in India after some uh, 15, 1800 years by the time of Long Chenpa, if I got my mathematics correct. Um, there's the, the whole uh, range of Buddhism has developed by his time and uh, from his time onward, or really from the time of the early introduction of Buddhism into Tibet with Padmasambhava and uh, Vimalamitra and Shantarakshita, really Buddhism has gone through all of its different major phases. And... Um, so he's at this position, at this point in time where, where uh, members of the tradition can start to look back at the evolution of their own tradition, as opposed to it being uh, sort of external scholars from the West is, is what is more common, that we more commonly see this sort of uh, analytical approach. But he's doing it himself, and he's not alone in doing this. There's other presentations of this. Um, there's at least two in English that are very similar, that have start off with these very similar chapters. And, and also, uh, you should know that Tibetans are not shy about plagiarism. They, uh, they like plagiarism. Plagiarism is a good thing. It shows respect and... Um, it shows that uh, you understood uh, some other master. And so those other ones that are in English are The History of Buddhism in India by Bhutan. That similarly starts off with these chapters about the Buddha from different points of view and the Buddha's teachings, recounting the, the different types of teachings and the different ways of understanding them. And also a text by uh, famous Galupa teacher, one of the two disciple, main disciples of Tsongkhapa called Kedru, who turns out to be the first Dalai Lama in a book called The Fundamentals of the Tantrika System. Anyway, so we have it today. We have the teacher from Hinayana Mahayana, Vajrayana points of views, and his teachings from the Hinayana and Mahayana points of views, and then the Buddha's Nirvana. Very cool presentation of uh, like, who was that guy from different points of view? So let's dive in on page uh, seven of our text. The Hinayana interpretation begins according to the Hinayana interpretation. Our teacher give rise to bodhicitta, the awakening mind in the presence of the Buddha Maha Shakyamuni. His name, of course, was Shakyamuni also, um, but like all Buddhas, he has been on the path for three incalculable aeons, according to the sort of common or outermost tradition 
of the idea of uh, the path of a bodhisattva to being a Buddha. And in the Hinayana tradition, there's one Buddha at a time in, in each uh, aeon, and only one Buddha at a time in each hand. But you have many Buddhas all the time in the hopper, so to speak, in order to become a Buddha in any particular aeon, since it takes three incalculable aeons, which include an incalculable number of minor aeons. Uh, and at any one point in time, you'll have a number of different Buddhas who are at different stages on that path to becoming a Buddha. So uh, it has to start somewhere, and he's said to have f first uh, generated the bodhicitta aspiration to become a Buddha for the sake of all sentient beings in the presence of a Buddha named Maha Shakyamuni. Can I, I ask a question? Or I know it's early on about this first opening bit. Do me a small favor. You're a little loud. I'll just turn down my sound. Sorry. Go for it. I, I, we can wait. It's it's it's, it's on. If you're if you're on a roll, let's, let's. No, no, please. This is a good time. Okay, so I know we're in. We just started the Hinayana interpretation, and so you gave rise to Bodhicitta, and here it's glossed as awakening mind. And right, like on the traditional interpretation would be that this is giving rise to the altruistic wish to free all sentient beings from suffering, but. You know, obviously, from the from an audio yoga perspective, or from like a even we could say a practitioner's perspective, I would view that as meaning something very different. So, like the like experientially, what comes first in my experience isn't I want to help other people necessarily, right? There's there's a recognition of some sense of like vast space and openness and literally the heart mind awakening the chitta which is heart mind becoming awakened so it's you know we would call i would say if you give rise to bodhicitta that's a, a flash of enlightenment essentially right and it, and, but there's an important difference of operations that that comes first right one realizes this that you're caught in the snare and you're suffering and then you from that indistinguishable from it is this this compulsion to help other people Right, but it's not a thought like, oh, I ought to help other people because X, Y, Z. So I wonder, I mean, is it, should we read that in even here? Or, because there's always this, dis this disconnection for me of, oh, bodhicitta, he gave rise to bodhicitta, which means like the cognitive thought of let's help all sentient beings. And then in other perspectives, realizing bodhicitta is, is realizing the nature of mind. And it strikes me that those are presented quite differently. Yeah, these are. there's two types of bodhicitta. There's absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. And absolute bodhicitta is indeed the, the mind of the enlightened mind and, and experiencing and connecting to the enlightened mind. And then relative bodhicitta is uh, very much a conventional, conceptual, discursive thought of, oh, I really want to help all all, the, all sentient beings achieve enlightenment, and mm -hmm. I want my life to that. So there are those two aspects to it, and uh, although we practice as if we can experience absolute bodhicitta, until you experience the path of seeing, you really can't experience absolute bodhicitta because absolute bodhicitta is, as you said, the nature of awake of awakening of enlightenment. 
it's beyond conceptual mind. So really what we start out with is the aspirational relative bodhicitta that aspires towards that experience. And the presumption is you also... And so we should hear... Sorry, I kind of... The presumption is that he must have been uh, practicing and uh, understanding suffering and its cause and its cessation and, and the path to that for some time before coming up with this larger aspiration to become a Buddha. Just like all of us initially come to the path where with uh, a desire to assuage our own suffering. And then at some point he, uh, he, real, he saw this Buddha and it was like, oh, wow. I can I can be, go go beyond myself. Mm -hmm. Matt, can gotcha. I throw a different question out there? Nick, hi, hi. So I assume our teacher means Buddha Shakyamuni. Yes. And then he is t is speaking in the presence of Buddha Maha Shakyamuni. Is that right? Yes. It was like the Buddha principle or something like that? No, he was the Buddha of a particular time period that existed three countless aeons ago. I thought from a Hinayana perspective that he that the Buddha was the first Buddha. No, the Buddha was the fourth Buddha of this golden aeon. And there's uh, innumerable aeons, and each aeon has a Buddha. And our aeon has a thousand aeons. Our, our great, the, the golden aeon has a thousand Buddhas in it. So is that described in the? It, it's, in the it's in the Hinayana literature. The, the distinction that you're trying to get at is that in the Hinayana tradition, there's only one Buddha at a time. Well, no, it's, this is, it's interesting because that's a surprise to me because in my understanding of the early Buddhist scriptures is I thought they were, I didn't realize they had this kind of cosmic sensibility. I thought that was a Mahayana thing. And that basically in the, in the early scriptures that Shakyamuni was the first Buddha, but I guess that, that was just not correct. No, that, that is not correct. And, and this, that's a common misconception. There's a lot of common misconceptions that Mahayanists, Mahayanas. I'm going to bring them to you as, as we go. <laughs> so here, I'll, I'll name another one so that we, we don't, you don't have to trip over that when we get to it. The four measurables. Is that a Mahayana practice or a Hinayana practice? Uh, well, I'm assuming based on the setup that it's a Hinayana practice. It's both, isn't it? Yeah, it's both. And it's very popular in the Hinayana context. But many of our colleagues, you know, in our Sangha are like convinced, no, that's a Mahayana practice. The Hinayana. But there are differences between the two. Yeah, slight differences. But, uh, another Depending on who you ask. Oh, sorry. Another important distinction is the difference between Theravada and Hinayana. So we have the case in the Tibetan tradition where the Hinayana becomes like a type of practitioner. It's a, tro a psychological trope, essentially, that is, is later grafted onto the Theravadans after that there has long since ceased to be contact between actual Theravadans and actual uh, Mahayanists. So, like, on one level, we could say from the psychological trope perspective, 
the four Brahma Viharas might be Mahayana, but a Theravadin could have those, right? So That's why I said the scriptures because I, w- I was trying to avoid getting into that whole, uh, you know, uh, sectarian thing. But yeah, I think that's true too, for sure. I agree. I, I like that word trope. Thank you. That's cool. I am trying. I am trying to track though, like what is. What do we know from a modern scholarly perspective, you know, that's different from the sort of tropes that they would have about other people, so to speak? Well, similar to what Derek was talking about, the other Derek was talking about, was that the Tibetans had a notion of there being these Hinayanists that were uh, sort of generic creatures and uh, really do not match what the practitioners that we find in Southeast Asia are, who are, are not really Theravans. They're, um, to, to call them all Theravans is a vast oversimplification. Actually, it's, it's, it's a Western, Westernization, Westernized simplification of all those different traditions. But, so cool. So, so Derek, the term here, when he, uh, he's actually using the term, the Hinayana interpretation. Yeah. That's his term. Yeah. And, and that was in play for quite a while? That's a good question. Um, uh, it, it's certainly in, in play in the Mahayana Sutras. Uh, you know, there's two senses in, in my mind, at least to what you're asking about. One is... It's in the very early Mahayana Sutras where they try to distinguish themselves from the the existing traditions, let's say. And they try to distinguish themselves as being superior and they call themselves the Mahayana versus, as you know, Hini means the small yana. So they try to disparage the others by saying they're, they're small-minded. The scope of their aspiration is very small compared to us who are aspiring to help all sentient beings achieve enlightenment of, of, Buddha, of Buddhahood, help all beings achieve Buddhahood, which is a, a very important distinction, whereas the so-called Hinayanists or Theravadins also try to help others achieve enlightenment, but of that of an Arhat, not of a Buddha. So um, it, it's... it's uh, uh, not at all something new to see the, the terminology of Hinayana and Mahayana in this in this way, but um, it's it's certainly become sort of systematized at this point, where Hinayanists uh, have uh, certain views and certain practices and certain experiences, and Mahayanists have theirs. But it's been that's been in place, so to speak, for many centuries. Actually, if you look at the texts of Chandra Kirti and Shanti Deva and so forth in India. Did the Hinayanists have the same idea of the development of the path then, where first you sort of develop stability of mind and then you develop spaciousness and compassion afterwards? Uh, no, they they viewed compassion as a, a practice among one among many that was used as a uh, antidote to negative emotional states. 
so when you look in their in their presentation of the path and the practices they have their famous list of 40 meditation topics and uh, there's a whole section of those that are antidotes to negative emotional states like lust and anger so that the antidote to anger is a compassion so if you're an angry person you would meditate on com compassion and if you're a lustful person you would meditate on the the 11 stages of decom decomposition of a skeleton or maybe nine i can't remember we should add a couple more to them just like we should to the supreme court but i diverge okay so uh he he uh gives rise to bodhicitta I'll skip the, the quotes for time. Thereafter, during those three immensely long aeons, looking at your watch, uh, the Bodhisattva pursued spiritual development, serving 55,000 Buddhas during the, fifth, during the first aeon, 66 and 77, respectively, in the second and third great incalculable aeons. Precisely that number, by the way. And then they quote from the Buddha himself, saying from the enlightened guide, Rastrapala, to the Buddha, Vipassian, I venerated, blah, blah, blah. And then he lists these other, some of these other Buddhas. And on the top of page eight, he references Dipamkara, which is a, a much more commonly uh, referred to prior Buddha, where the Buddha repeated his aspiration for complete enlightenment has roused bodhicitta but it was not the first time and uh, the treasury of abhidharma sort of sums it up vipassian dipamkar uh, ratnashikin came at the close of the three immensely long aeons preceding that succession first was shakyamuni Finally, it is maintained that he awakened to Buddhahood through a process entailing the 12 deeds, the famous 12 deeds of the Buddha, and having passed into Nirvana with no trace of his mind-body aggregates remaining or skandhas, abides in the basic space of peace, the traditional view of uh, uh, Parinirvana, according to this sort of early tradition, which here is being called the Hinayana tradition. Thus, the Buddha developed the positive qualities associated with the paths of accumulation, sorry, the path of accumulation, for three immensely long aeons. And this is sort of the crux of the differences, is the path. And at what stage of the path he was at when he sat down under the Bodhi tree that night, that famous night, can you remember? Um, then at Vajrasana, the Bodhi seat, Bodh Gaya, with attainment of the highest level of this path of accumulation as the basis he traversed, the rest of the five paths, those of linkage, seeing, meditation, and no more learning in a single setting. So he went through all these other paths and sort of in, uh, in the course of that, uh, uh, let's see, I guess 12 hours from six o'clock at night or, or maybe like uh, eight eight hours from eight o'clock at night till four o'clock in the morning till dawn. I guess dawn in May is early, four or so. Uh, this interpretation is consistent with the process undergone by a Prateka Buddha of keen acumen. So let's see more. So I'm skipping the quote. The, the following verse attests to the fact that in his final lifetime and conditions existence, the Bodhisattva, this is the key, was an ordinary being, 
Until he attained enlightenment, he was just an ordinary guy like the rest of us. Which is the, the uh, sort of very limited view of who the Buddha was. But, you know, it's funny. On the other hand, we sort of stress that sometimes as a skillful means for particularly in the West, that's like a huge point of like, you know, everybody can do it. You know, he was a, a normal, ordinary guy until enlightenment, and just like you and I. That's not the way the majority of Buddhists view the Buddha's life. Okay, so here's the ord. Yes, ma'am. I had a quick question. It just seems funny to me that um, they, he just spent all this time talking about the path that Shakyamuni Buddha went on in order to get to the lifetime where he became enlightened and then say he was an ordinary being. Those things seem a little counter to each other to me. They are, but that is how the early tradition, the early tradition doesn't sort of, um, in, in some way sort of think it through carefully. <laughs> he spent calculable aeons on the path of accumulation. Which, you know, could mean different things. Maybe the path of accumulation has more sort of to it than we normally attribute to it. I don't know. But that is that is what the early tradition, how they describe it in texts of the early tradition. In the Mahayana tradition as well, some maintain in keeping with the Hinayana interpretation that the Bodhisattva first gave rise to Bodhicitta, then pursued spiritual development for three immeasurably long aeons and finally became a Buddha in this human world through a process entailing 12 deeds. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? He was a normal guy, gave rise to Bodhicitta and tread the path, became a Buddha. But they further hold that the Buddha simultaneously <coughs> oh, manifested enlightened embodiments elsewhere in the universe. Huh. <laughs> In this universe, which is called difficult to renounce, because it's such a wonderful place, benefiting beings all over the place. And uh, um, from the quote, when the, uh, from the point that I first gave rise to the intention to attain unsurpassable enlightenment, I pursued spiritual development with great diligence for three supremely long aeons when the average human span of human life was 100 years. And that's a reference to different time periods have different uh, spans of life of beings. And they, they go from very long in, uh, in the good days to very, very short in the bad days. And we're sort of uh, in the, in the uh, bad side of the scale. And so human life has become re relatively shortened at a mere 100 years. It's a funny number that they use. I mean, how many people those days live to 100? Anyway, it's a round number. It's like, you know, 51, uh, it's around 100. Well, um, there was Methuselah, you know. Methuselah. Well, I mean, each tradition has, you know, beings who live. Yeah, it's very, yeah, that's right. Long, long lifespans, right, and much the, longer than us. It's very similar. To the, 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 the very long time periods, and they were like much larger and, and of course, they were much happier. Uh, let's see. I saw that ordinary beings were blind and without a guide. I awakened to Buddha, Buddhahood in this human world and completely turned the inconceivable wheel of Dharma. Certain authors and the secret mantra approach. 
don't know how we found out about them if it's secret, but anyway, agree for the most part with this interpretation, but more specifically maintained that while the Bodhisattva was practicing asceticism, which he did for six years before achieving enlightenment, although his body was seated by the banks of a river, his mind was in Akanishta. How do you like that? How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? Being empowered with great rays of light. So he was, he's there doing, you know, asceticism on the banks of the Ganges River. In the meantime, he's, he's really up in Akanisha receiving empowerments from all the Buddhas in the same directions. By cultivating a profound state of non-dual meditative absorption, he thus awakens to Buddhahood. Immediately after this, he manifested at Vajrasana in the matter of one awakening to Buddhahood. So then he sort of comes back into his body and sort of brings himself together, collects himself and, and says, oh, yeah, here, this is what enlightenment looks like. <laughs> uh, this is a nice quote, okay. Um, Although Shakyamuni pursued spiritual development for three immensely long aeons, he had not realized his goal. So at Naranjana, he dwelled in the meditative absorption of nothingness. Now, nothingness is is one of the higher uh, of the absorption schemes. It's one of the immaterial or formless absorptions. That's the second one. I think the first one is uh, consciousness. Uh, sorry, it's the third one. There's conscious, um, the realm of consciousness, and then the realm of space, and then the realm of nothingness, and then neither perception nor non-perception. Anyway, it's a good place to hang out. Um, at that time, the Sugatas of the Ten Directions brought an end to his mental patterns. So one of the key features is that this connection with all the other Buddhas of, the, of uh, all the Ten Directions is being involved in his enlightenment so it's not just him on his own and thoroughly revealed to him the non-dual state of profound lucidity basically they gave him mind transmission pointing out transmission totally pure like the expanse of the sky at midnight just like other victorious ones he meditated on that and at dawn in a single instant he realized truth boom stayed up all night by the way he must have been tired the next day uh, I guess he was young back in his youth to guide ordinary beings he remained at Bodhimandala Vajrasana Bodhgaya and conquered the great hordes of Mara the four Maras to care for beings he turned the wheel of Dharma and let's see let's skip that one pretty much similar now we have the extraordinary Mahayana Vajrayana interpretation according to the extraordinary Mahayana interpretation. Eric? Yes, ma'am. Um, so what, what, what is the difference? What is ordinary and what is extraordinary Mahayana? Well, we'll see. We just went through the ordinary one. Now let's see how the extraordinary one differs. No, but I mean, what is he referring to? He's, he's, uh, it's not like there's an ordinary Mahayana tradition nor an extraordinary Mahayana tradition. He's just saying there's certain texts in the Mahayana, uh, certain Mahayana texts which present a sort of ordinary uh, Mahayana, uh, ordinary view of the life of the Buddha. So there's, there's sort of a common 
view of the life of the Buddha among various Mahayana sutras, and then in a in a small in a in the larger number of Mahayana sutras, and then in the smaller number of Mahayana sutras, here and there, we get we see a, a different approach presented, but it's not that widespread. It's it's uh, few and far between. Okay. So therefore, it's not that ordinary, not that ordinary or common. It's not like there's a specific school. He's not saying it, it's a particular school or or this or that. It's just there's the general consensus of Mahayana texts, and then there's a few of them that have a different point of view, which prevent a very interesting point of view. Thank you for asking that. According to this interesting, unusual point of view in certain few Mahayana texts, having first aroused bodhicittans, pursued the path of bodhisattva, awakened to Buddha in the realm of Akanisha Ganavyuha. So he didn't achieve enlightenment down here. He achieved enlightenment in Akanisha, and all Buddhas achieve enlightenment in Akanisha Ganavyuha. That's the place to do it. Reserve your spot today. Subsequently manifested in the matter of one awakening to Buddhahood in the Immaculate Abode, and thereafter, shortly thereafter, manifested in the matter of one awakening to Buddhahood at Vajrasana. It's unclear what the Immaculate Abode is. It seems like it's a, a, a third place, that there's Akanishta, the Immaculate Abode, and then Vajrasana, although it could be an epithet of Akanishta Ganaviha. The journey to Sri Lanka. Maybe somebody reading the notes can help me out there. Uh, in, the, in the journey to Sri Lanka, which presumably is the uh, Lankavatara Sutra, we read, the Buddha did not actually awaken to Buddhahood in the realm of desire or in the realm of formlessness. The realm of desire is this realm. Um, um, there's a reference to the three realms of samsara, desire, form, and formless. Or in the realm of formlessness, in the in the uh, absorption of nothingness, you who were free of desire and attachment became a Buddha Akanishta in the realm of form. So this is a sort of a nuanced uh, little point: is that Buddhas achieve enlightenment in Akanishta, and Akanishta is the form realm, and they reside in the formless realm until they're ready to. Uh, achieve enlightenment and, and take birth. Anyway, in the delightful realm of Akanisha Ganaviyuha, beyond the immaculate abodes that completely awakened Buddha, awakened to Buddhahood, it was an emanation who awakened to Buddhahood in this realm. Uh, Derek. Yeah, just something that jumped out to me in the, the first quote from the Lankavatara Sutra, and I, the, the way you read it, I think it's probably right. I read it the change of, of tone there. So the Buddha did not actually awaken. And then it switches to the second person. It says, you who are free of desire and attachment became a Buddha. Um, I I read that as, as like breaking the fourth wall, essentially, and, and kind of similar to how in the Lotus Sutra, a really popular sutra in East Asia, it was also translated in Tibetan. There's this idea that every individual already is a, is a Buddha but not in this, not in just like a normal Mahayana sense, but in like a, a time has no meaning kind of, we've already all done it kind of sense. So I read this as saying like the Buddha didn't actually attain enlightenment. You, as in the reader, you did that essentially. But uh, perhaps that's that's reading way too much into a change of, of 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's a more straightforward version <laughs> here, and that we'll see the version you just presented in the next section. Mary Beth. Well, in the um, the footnote, it does say, as you said, that that the immaculate abode refers to a naturally present pure Nirmanakaya realm, also mm -hmm. called Akanishta. Yeah, the place is called Akanishta. Yeah. Thanks. That's neat. Yeah. There's two Akanishtas. Liz, which Akanishta are you in? Oh, oh, well, maybe that's the answer to my question because earlier in a note in the previous um, little uh, interpretation, whatever, um, no size, <laughs> um, it said the Sambokakaya, that Akanishta. Akanishtha is the Sambhokakaya realm. And then, and then in this one, it said the Nirmanakaya. And, and I was like, what? There's two Akanishtas. One's a Buddha realm, a Buddha field. So that would be the Sambhokakaya one. And the other one is in the realm of form, which is the Nirmanakaya, Akanishtha. But isn't um, the Sambhokakaya a form... Because they're, they're both Rupakaya, right? Yeah, but it's not within the three realms of samsara. It's in a Buddha field. Buddha fields outside of the three realms of samsara. There's all sorts of other places called Buddha fields. And that's where Sabogakayas live. You knew that. You were just testing me. Speechless. We'll come back to you. Pinch her. Um, some authors in the secret mantra approach hold a similar view and maintain that immediately after attaining Buddha and Akanishtha, the Buddha descended from the peak of Mount Sumeru to Bodhi Mandala. So, so Mount uh, Meru. Uh, affectionately called Sumeru, extends up through the three worlds of samsara, the uh, desire, form, and formless. Well, it doesn't really go into the formless realm because there's no mountains in the formless realm, so just the two. Sorry. Uh, and there he awakened to Buddhahood at the foot of the Bodhi tree. The summary of suchness. What a cool name that is. The transcendent accomplished conqueror having attained, or awakened rather, to Buddhahood, knew that he had become the embodiment of the enlightened form, speech, and mind of all Tathagata soon after he descended from the peak of Sumeru to Bodhali Mandala to conform to the perceptions of ordinary people having taken a seat at the foot of the Bodhi tree, dot, 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 he pretended to achieve enlightenment, meditating through the three uh, sessions of the evening. Others, however, explain that it was after being empowered and Akanishta by all Buddhas, that the Buddha awakened Buddhahood as Vajradhara in the Akanishta realm of our world system. Uh, he then immediately awakened to Buddhahood as Shakyamuni and Vajrasana, so benefited beings. According to the Tantra, empowerment of the Vajra holder, the Bodhisattva, the so on and so forth, was naturally empowered in the great universe known as basis of center as adorned the flower. That's our universe, by the way. After that, within our uh, smaller universe, which is within that greater universe, 
our unit, small universe called difficult to renounce in the human worlds throughout the intermediate sized universe of world systems that comprise four worlds each. There's a lot of different worlds going on here. It's a little confusing. The transcendent calm Chicago with the name Shakyamuni having defeat of our awakened. That wasn't very helpful, sorry. Anyway, here we go to the unsurpassable interpretation approach. Just the sort of, I mean, it's like all these different views, and then Longchamp says, okay, this is how it is. The foregoing ordinary and extraordinary interpretations were given in response to certain beings, kinds of beings to be guided. Beings who think in terms of cause and result. However, the quintessential definitive meaning, which is found in unsurpassable approach, is as follows. Our teacher awakened to Buddha an incalculable number of aeons, immensely long aeons ago. Through Tathagata's immeasurable and manifold display, ordinary beings were benefited in whatever way was necessary to guide them. The teacher guided beings solely through emanations, such as those who manifested as though first giving rise to bodhicitta, so that beginners would not feel inadequate. Those who attained higher and higher spiritual levels, so that bodhisattvas could attain those levels. And those who performed the twelve deeds, as presented in the reunion of father and son, Sutra, famous Sutra. In the past, countless aeons ago, in a realm composed of as many universes as there are grains of sand in the in the bed of the river Ganges, which did exist at that time, but Tathagata, known as Indrakate, to awaken to Buddha, benefited beings past and to Nirvana from that point until the present aeon, the Buddha, this Buddha manifested an inconceivable number of times in the manner of one awakening to Buddha. This Buddha continues to manifest as ordinary beings who first give rise to Bodhicitta and then eventually awaken to Buddha and will continue to do so until samsara is empty. He quotes uh, two quotes. The second quote is from the White Lotus Sutra, which Derek just referenced. Um, o oh, children of spiritual heritage, many hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of days ago, I awakened to the state of manifestly perfect enlightenment. So basically, I've always been enlightened. It's like in the movie The Shining, where he's in the bathroom, they say, you've always been the caretaker. That was a bad joke. Anyway, there are teachings of the unsurpassable approach of the supreme secret that accord with this interpretation. They say that with enlightenment taking place in the context of primordial being, there is a state of evenness in immutable basic space that eludes measurement in terms of aeons. Without strain from that state of Dharmakaya, countless Sabogakaya and Namanakaya manifestations have appeared to all beings in whatever ways are necessary to guide them. And they will continue to manifest everywhere for as long as the universe exists. So in other words, there is enlightened Buddhahood, all-pervading all and all um, timeless, without beginning and without end. And from that, there's emanations of different types of Buddhas displaying different types of, of uh, uh, displays, different types of uh, uh, Beings going, you know, pursuing different types of paths, achieving enlightenment in different types of way. Uh, but basically, they're all going through a facade. They're all going through a play, because they're all part of this uh, undifferentiated and um, unchanging Buddhahood, Buddha naturehood, Buddhahood nature.
Well, now, so skipping the quote, while not wavering from the basic space of Dharmakaya within the context of the lucid manifestation of Sambhogakaya, an inconceivable miraculous display spontaneously shines forth in the environments of the six classes of beings to benefit them. That would be the six realms of uh, from gods to hell realms. Let's see. Skipping the quote, the four ways of guiding are as follows. So these these Buddhas guide beings in four ways, using the four ways of guiding, which is this uh, famous scheme that uh, bodhisattvas are supposed to employ in order to bring beings along, other beings along on the path. And he presents a rather absolute version of these guiding to the enormous merit of enlightened forms. The first one whereby the 12 deeds are carried out. The second one is gather, guiding through the collections of teachings. So first is through deed, and the second is through speech, enlightened speech, which provide a variety of spiritual approaches, guiding through sublime states of perception, whereby enlightened mind entails knowledge of beings' levels of acumen. So seeing uh, the, seeing the minds of all beings, and guiding them through inconceivable qualities and activities of enlightenment uh, is the fourth one. Guiding through inconceivable qualities and activities of enlightenment manifests in various miraculous displays, emanating lights, and so forth. So guiding through uh, miracles, basically. So here we have the, the highest, a quote from the highest continuum. It's Uttara Tantra by Maitreya, the future Buddha. And then nature, it is the nature of Nirmanakaya that in various ways it comes into being through uh, manifest forms of rebirth while not strained from Dharmadhatu, Dharmakaya, descending from Tushita, entering a womb. Now there's a little nuance here that's that's not clear and that's uh, very rarely elaborated, but it relates to what we were just talking about with the different types of Akanishta and where the Buddha achieves enlightenment, whether it's in the formless realm of the nothingness or in the form realm of Akanishta or in your backyard. But, but uh, there's th these two steps are separated, descending from Tushita and entering a womb. You would, you, if you were really picky, you could say, why is that two steps? That's just like one step. You descend and you, and you enter. What they leave out is he descends from Tushita and goes into Akanishta in the form realm, and then he enters the room, uh, the womb. <laughs> Sorry. Taking rebirths, having trained in arts and march, uh, martial skills, and so on and so forth. Uh, but that was the point I wanted to talk about in that quote. The rest of it is fairly straightforward. But anyway, the different presentations of who the Buddha was and how enlightenment happens, culminating in this idea that the Buddha has always been the Buddha. Uh, the, the one that we know of as Shakyamuni is just a facade, just a, an emanation skillfully created and presented from the, the uh, Dharmakaya Buddha that is unchanging and timeless and beyond all scope and uh, was just created for this world realm on this time period in order to demonstrate 
And that's represented by the primordial Buddha? Not represented, but uh, it's a manifestation, an emanation of Laura, Lori, sorry. And is there actually a Buddha at all, or is it just Buddha space? It's both. You know, it's sort of like uh, since things are empty. Right. You know, right. It's, it's a little bit hard to distinguish is there a Buddha at all or not. Right. Right. Are there people at all? Right. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but yeah, it's almost when they, he was talking about this, when he talked about the space that eludes measurement and uh, state of evenness, it's almost like he's talking about physics, like the space and matter have this it's neat, isn't enlightened, it? yeah, it's enlightened essence or something. something. Yeah. What were you saying? Space is curved. It curves back on itself, right? Isn't that what he said? Anyway, yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of mind blowing. It is. It's very cool. The Hinayana interpretation of the teachings, according to the Shravaka school, the Buddha did not teach for a period of seven weeks after his enlightenment. He took some time off. He'd been really busting his ass for six years, so he took a little break. And in response, he had like built up uh, like a week per year, I think, of vacation, unused vacation. In response to supplication from Brahma and Indra, who were the main gods of the Hindu, Hinduistical type uh, religions of that time period. So immediately sort of absconding with the major gods of uh, the, the majority of Indians at that point and making them subservient to him. Uh, he journeyed to Vajrasani, uh, sorry, to Varanasi, where he taught the four truths. His audience made up of the five noble ones who were his buddies in uh, asceticism, as well as, by the way, there were 80,000 gods, little did you know, and uh, they perceived the truth. In other words, they achieved the enlightenment. From that point until his 80th year, the Buddha presented his teachings in three stages. These schools maintain that he taught in response to specific situations, giving a distinct teaching in each place according to the capacities of those to be guided. As it says in this, uh, one of the key texts of the Vinaya that talks about the, the lineage of succession of the Vinaya, one of the main historical sources for the, the Buddha's life and the early life of the uh, order on the banks of the Varata River. He gave to the Nagas a great outpouring of teachings concerning the ten kinds of positive actions. The descendants of Vasishta, Vasishta together with their 500 attendants simultaneously gained an unclouded vision free of distortions. A little, a little you know, what he's showing here is that in, in the earliest uh, in one of the earliest texts of the early tradition of the so-called Hinayana tradition, you already have this idea that he's giving teachings to different beings in addition to, uh, to the humans, in addition to the five uh, ascetics. It's also teaching to all these other beings. Regarding the Buddha's passing into Nirvana at the age of 80, the great treasury of detailed explanations, maybe the Mahavastu explains, 
in each of the following locations the sage the sublime buddha spent one year so here we have a recounting of where the buddha was in his lifetime and uh where he went and they they compile this from where he spent the rainy which each year in india there's uh, about two to three months of the year where it's basically impossible to travel around and everybody stays somewhere because it's just like pouring cats and dogs and uh, uh, so they list where did he stay each where did he stay for the rainy season each year and they sort of say well that's where he was that year it's really just a, anyway the sacred site where he turned the wheel of dharma vaishali makola the abode of the gods shishumara kaushambi all these different places right uh he spent two years at the sacred site of blazing cave <clears throat> uh had a good light show four in the medicinal groves of so and so and then he spent before all that and six years practicing austerities 23 in travesty which is where he grew up in the palace and 20 uh no sorry 23 years in travesty that was the place he favored the most after his enlightenment it's not that he stayed there continuously he came back went away came back 29 at the palace thus he was 80 they're like trying to end up how old he was little thing that he sort of passes over rather quickly as early on in the list he says the abode of the gods well, the story is that he spent one rainy retreat up in uh, one of the god realms with his mother he visited his mom she uh being a divine being that she was was reborn in a, in a one of the god realms and uh uh, as you must know, which he didn't really talk about any of the facts of the 12 deeds, but his mother dies in childbirth, gives birth to him. The legend is the Buddha came out of her side. So presumably the, it was a difficult birth and they did a rather primitive cesarean and she died. And he was raised by her sister, his aunt. But um, so she goes up to the, she's reborn in the God realm. And he goes and visits her for three months during one of the rainy seasons and teaches her the Dharma. What else would you do with your mom but teach her the Dharma? Now, which part of the Dharma do you think he teaches her? What would you teach your mom? What would you start with? Davinia? She's not really a, a nun. The sutras, you know, like suffering, the Four Noble Truths, things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. He teaches her the Abhi Dharma. <laughs> the first. Well, she was in the God realm, so. That's. <laughs> he teaches her the Abhi Dharma because she's an extremely advanced being, his mother. So she, he teaches her the most advanced teachings, and then when he comes back, it's this famous event where all of a sudden the sky opens up and a big staircase appears. And he comes down a staircase, and then he's on the earth again. And there's flowers and clouds and music and the whole thing. And this is, uh, you hear about, like, you see emails in different Tibetan Buddhist groups primarily uh, celebrate this day. It's called Kabak Duchen. It's the descent from heaven day. And, the, you know, there's a lot of dates in the Tibetan calendar that are sort of obscure, and they say, you know, your deeds are multiplied by 10 billion on this day, you know, so be good. And this is one of those high holy days, but they never, uh, uh, it sort of cures people. Most people don't know what actually that day is. It's the day he reappeared. He was gone for three months. 
Nobody knew where he was. Actually, they knew. Uh, Kaushipa, uh, Mahagaliyana, Mahagaliyana, sorry, it's a mouthful. He had he was had the most divine eye. And he he looked, they said, where'd the Buddha go? And he said, oh, he's with his mom. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Eric, just a quick, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, thanks, Lori. Um, I need a sort of basic reminder here of something, sort of Buddhism 101. Um, so he passed into nirvana when he was 80, like when he died. Um, so there's enlightenment and then there's nirvana. Can you just remind me why those are listed out as two different things? Yeah, so uh, in, the, in the early tradition, there's uh, the achievement of Buddhahood with what's, what's called residue. He still has his aggregates. So he still gets hungry. He still gets sick. The Buddha actually gets sick. You know, this is one of the points that they... they debate and talk about it's like well if he was the buddha why does he get sick why does he get hungry why does he sleep why does he meditate why does the buddha still meditate after he achieved enlightenment and you know there are different views the early view is is was he was a real person you know he still he was uh, you know a normal human being and he got hungry and he got sick and he got tired and meditation refreshed him and, and the other view is that he didn't need to do any of those things. You know, the Supreme Mahayana view is he didn't need to do any of those things. Those were all just a show for other people to uh, to pretend that Buddhahood was something that they could relate to, was achievable by normal people like us. Um, but the early tradition views that there's a, a great difference between uh, achieving enlightenment while you still have the aggregates, the aggregates as a container of karmic residue. So, uh, like his death when he ate that uh, meal of putrid or uh, pork that had gone bad that eventually led to his death was the ripening of karma in his past. And so even though he was completely enlightened, he still had these sort of odd little karmic residues because he, he lived in a body and he was subjected to what bodies are subjected to but when he passed away and his his aggregates dissolved his physical body dissolved he separated from his physical body then he achieved complete absolute enlightenment without residue and in the early tradition they distinguish these as being very different experiences very different stages of accomplishment or experience and then in the Mahayana tradition, they come up with this, this scheme of uh, non-abiding nirvana. That once you're in nirvana, it doesn't matter if you're alive or dead, there's no difference. Whether you have a body or not, you're in nirvana. You're enlightened. So, let's see. Eric, I just had a question, too, related to the same. So, you know, I'm thinking about the story of Siddhartha who was a prince, and he left the and we're not talking about that at all, but um, when they say the 29 That's years the at the palace, is that when he was the prince, or is that a different? Yes, that was when he was a prince. He was 20, okay. 29 years, he was a prince in the palace, until okay. he left a couple of weeks after his wife gave birth. He said, I'm out of here, I don't want to deal with babies. 
we don't talk about that either, do we? That's where all that car- bad karma came from, being a prince. Being a, no, completely skipping out on his wife, who just gave birth. Anyway, according to the well-known interpretation of the ordinary Mahayana, an excellent place of Varanasi, on other excellent occasions, the teacher, excellent teacher of Shakyamuni spoke to an excellent retinue made up of the five nobles and 80,000 gods teaching the excellent Dharma. Derek, what's with the excellent? Because it's throughout the whole thing here. Yeah, if you haven't picked up on it, there's five excellencies. <laughs> it's, it's called the five uh, uh, perf- perfections, the five... Uh, the five perfections of the Mahayana Buddha is the perfect, uh, perfect teacher, perfect teaching, perfect time, perfect place, and perfect audience. So the Buddha always, the, the, the Buddha was, it was not like uh, um, happenstance that the Buddha was born at a certain place and time, that he achieved enlightenment at a certain place and time, and that his students had certain students, and that he taught certain things in certain places. That was not like just uh, um, capricious, what do you say, just sort of like... Uh, serendipity. Serendipity. That was all planned out. It was like a master plan. And that's what excellent that's refers what, to. Five of them, right? The okay. Place, so that's the place. Excellent occasions is the excellent time. Excellent teacher is the excellent uh, teacher. And the excellent retinue is the audience. And the excellent teaching, teaching the excellent Dharma. Um, the first cycle of the Buddha's words, the various teachings pertaining to the four truths. And this he did between the ages of 36 and 42. Achieved enlightenment at 35, and they say 36 here, so we'll, we'll give him that slack. Maybe he took a year off. Uh, so that's the first six years, and that's like this first period. He began by teaching principally the training and discipline, which became to be known as the compilation of Vinaya. The ethical codes of Vinaya contain extensive overviews to classify actions according to their nature or their relation to formal precepts. The discourses of these concern the stages of meditation of absorption as well. And the celibate way of life undertaken in yogic practice, the further teachings of this give extensive detailed explanations and analyses of these topics. Then at an excellent place, at the excellent place of Vulture Peak, um, the excellent teacher, Shakyamuni, spoke to several excellent retinues. Simultaneously is the implication among the four relatively ordinary retinues were about 5,000 arhats, including Shariputra and Madhgalya Yana, his two main students. About 500 nuns, including Shakyamuni's stepmother, Prajapati, who was the one that pleaded with him to have women admitted to the order and who uh, raised him, and groups of lay people, including the householder Anathapindaka, who was a famous prince that sponsored most of his uh, activities and donated large places for him and his Sangha to live, and the lay woman Sagama, who figures prominently in certain sutras. As well, there were enormous numbers of gods, Nagas, demigods, and uh, Gandharvas. The extraordinary retinue was made up of an enormous number of bodhisattvas, including Bhadrapala, Radhasambhava, and Jaladatta, who had truly attained great levels of realization. On excellent occasions, he taught these retinue 
continues the excellent Dharma, the intermediate cycle of the Buddha's words, the various teachings pertaining to the characterization of phenomena as non-existent, i.e. the teachings on emptiness, the Prajnaparamita. This seated between the ages of 43 and 72. So there's this ordinary Mahayana view that he like taught certain types of teachings during certain periods of his life. He taught principally the training in mind, which came to be known as the compilation of sutra during this period. The ethical codes of sutra classify the precepts of the Bodhisattva vow. It should be understood in addition to uh, the precepts of the earlier uh, tr tradition, the, the uh, Shravaka and Pratyeka Buddha tradition. The discourses of sutra discuss meditative absorption in profound and extensive ways. The further teachings of sutra analyze related topics, the spiritual levels, which are the bhumis and the paths, powers of recall, and meditative absorption in great detail, that in excellent places, not in any one place, such as the human world and the abode of gods and dogs and excellent occasions. <clears throat> the excellent teacher Shakyamuni spoke to the excellent retinue of innumerable monks, nuns, gods, nagas, bodhisattvas, and others teaching the excellent Dharma. The final cycle of the Buddha's words, the various teachings pertaining to definitive truth. So you see there's three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha. This is the third one. Uh, the, fair, the final cycle of the Buddha's words, the various teachings pertaining to definitive truth as he did between the ages of 73 and 82. So here he lived a couple of years extra. And later they explain this uh, difference of years in a rather odd way. But uh, he taught principally the training, sublime knowing what came to be known as the compilation of Abhidharma during this period. Isn't that cool? That the, the three turnings in this ordinary Mahayana version are uh, uh, affiliated with Vinaya, Sutra, and Abhidharma, the three pitakas of the early teachings. Sort of like uh, create a transcendent version of the early teaching, the Tripitaka. Uh, but uh, very odd when you when you look at it, really. Um, the ethical codes of Abhidharma have to do with taming the afflictive states <clears throat> in ways that are easy to implement <laughs> and involve little hardship. The discourses of Abhidharma discuss the vast range of teachings for engaging in the experience of suchness, the further teachings, analyze in great detail the mind-body aggregates, the skandhas, the fields of experience, the uh, dhatus and the ayatanas, the components of perception, the controlling factors, consciousness, and tathagata-garma, the innately, totally pure Buddha nature, and discuss related topics. And then we have the extraordinary interpretation, according to which, in terms of the intelligence of those to be guided for those whose karma allowed them to comprehend the teachings gradually, it seemed that the Buddha taught in three successive cycles. It seemed that way. <clears throat> However, if those intelligence enabled them to comprehend everything all at once, he seemed to teach in its entirety on a single occasion everything that needed to be taught all at once. And he quotes, without saying nothing at all, I manifest the beings in infinite pervasive ways. When there are those who sincerely wish to comprehend in a gradual way, that is what occurs for them. For those who comprehend all at once, the variety of spiritual teachings manifest in their entirety, such as the great quality of enlightened speech to fulfill beings' hopes, just as they wish. So this notion that beings hear what's appropriate to them to hear. At the same time, different beings hear different things. 
Some masters hold exclusively that the three cycles were taught all at once, while others maintain that they were taught in stages. So we went through the stages approach. The other approach is that he taught all of them all the time to, to, to different beings, probably. They weren't separated. Both points of view amount to nothing more than ignorance of the significance underlying the distinction between the underlying extraordinary interpretations, which is based on the acumen of individual beings. So now we're getting towards Longchenpa's um, view. Like a precious wish-fulfilling gem, then the teacher ensured benefit for beings exactly according to their interests. This benefit came about because by his blessings, individual beings heard him. His speech marked by the 60 melodious qualities, as if he were speaking in their respective languages. Nevertheless, these words and sounds actually had no autonomous existence. Their manifestation was similar to that of an echo and arose because of the coming together of three things, the interests of those to be guided, the Buddha's blessing, and the occasion on which the two factors coincided. As stated in Uttara Tantra, the sound of an echo occurs within someone's consciousness. It is non-conceptual, unfabricated. Similarly, the enlightened speech of the Tagatas occurs within someone's consciousness, but it is not located externally or internally. The use of the echo as a metaphor is a really sort of interesting one in that the echo stands out in, in terms of the classification of, of dharmas, of entities. They classify sound into sounds that are naturally produced, like thunder and birds and that sounds that convey meaning produced by humans sounds that convey meaning and so an echo is sort of like neither of the two because it echoes the words but it's it's not really produced by a human to convey meaning it's just a, a natural playback so it's this sort of odd conundrum of how to classify that. And that's why they use it to the, as a metaphor for the Buddhist speech. It's like, you can't like pin it down. It's one thing or another. It's not like he spoke this way or that way. or Anyway. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, and this famous quote, Shanti Mati, from the night that I awakened to Buddhahood, to the night I pass into Nirvana, I will not have spoken even a single syllable of spiritual teachings. Other places he says, I, I didn't speak any, I didn't teach any Dharma to anyone at any time. Some ignorant people say that this means he did not teach in the ultimate sense, only in the relative sense, but they seem to be confused about what is actually so. That enlightened speech, which is beyond words and letters, seems to be expressed in words and letters that conform to the perceptions of beings. Therefore, regarding these cycles of the Buddha's words, which manifested in the perceptions of those to be guided, let us put aside the question of whether he taught in a single or in numerous locations. And those to be guided different three ways by his character interests. But each of them hears the Tathagata speech will be speak will be a different teaching, and all of these will occur simultaneously. Uh, let's see. I'll read the second quote. In the single instance of Vajra's speech, non-conceptual, unchanging, and delightful, there are many different interpretations based on the mentalities of those to be guided. Because it seemed to some that the Buddha spoke these three cycles of teachings in successive succession at different times, there exists such a classification as the intermediate length mother, which would be the Prajnaparamita Sutra in, I don't know, like 50,000 stanzas, indicates how marvelous that in the human realm there occurred the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. 
according to the perfection of sublime knowing in 700 stanzas, restating his teaching three times, he turned the wheel of Dharma in 12 ways. There are also cases in which what the single teacher spoke on a single occasion, a single place was perceived the different teachings by the individuals to be guided. The Sutra, the array of treasures, treasure urns, states on that occasion some bodhisattvas heard a variety of teachings about supreme compassion, while others heard a variety of teachings about the characterization of phenomena as non-existent. Given the quote, you may wonder, does this preceding quotation disprove the claim that the Buddha ever spoke in stages? However, the intended meaning of the foregoing passages is that a single theme of, te of the teachings is subject to different analyses and that no other location or, uh, location or occasion is involved. But this does not imply that he did not speak on other topics in other places and at other times. A little bit of a cryptic end to that section. <laughs> you know, in, in many ways, this last description to me seems um, to, to reflect our experience of hearing teachings. We all hear something different. Yeah, we? I mean, yeah. It, it seems very reasonable to me. Yeah. Not, not so miraculous. Yep. Well, it's a little more exaggerated when you say that people who speak different languages heard the teachings of their language. But, and I've heard people describe things like that, situations like that. That's neat. Okay, the Buddha's part nirvana. Buddha's nirvana at the age of 82, as opposed to 80. The Buddha saw that he could no longer ensure benefit by continuing to manifest physically, so it became his intention to demonstrate his passing into nirvana. Demonstrate his passing into nirvana. The sutra, the exalted passing into complete nirvana. At this time when the lifespan is 100 years, it is only fitting that I pass into nirvana at 80. But for your sake, O Brahman, I will endeavor, endeavor to prolong my life for an additional two. So there's these uh, uh, disagreeing references in the sutras to his age as being either 80 or 82. So that's what uh, Longchamp is grappling with, that there's discrepancies in the sources. The ordinary scriptural sources stated that he lived 80 years, whereas the extraordinary ones state that he lived to be 82. Although different methods of calculation are involved, these sources are considered to be in fundamental agreement excellent explanations given by the master Bhava Deva who states that if one counts the actual years this is a pretty funny I thought explanation but if you count the actual years there were 80 whereas if one counts of the Buddha's birth disregarding the 10 months he spent in the womb which by the way is how Tibetans count their age they include the 10 months in the womb as a year they add a year to their age for that so they say they, they, they're their life started at conception, which is an interesting view. Uh, that is, by separately counting the intercalary months that was traditionally added every three years. This is uh, what the Tibetans did to make their uh, lunar calendar work, and they inherited this from the Chinese or somebody. But the lunar calendar doesn't add up to 365 days. If you have 
12, 28 day periods. I don't know if anybody can do mathematics in their head, but it leaves some period of time unaccounted for. 12 cycles of the moon don't equal one rotation of the sun around the, the earth around the sun. <laughs> anyway, so they, add, they have to add another year every three, another month every three years. This is not that important at this point. Let's skip it, okay? <laughs> anyway, so on page 20, in any event, <laughs> they passed into Nirvana while lying between two shala trees, the town of Kushinagara, the region in which the Mala, a clan of powerful athletes, arose, his funeral pyre spontaneously burst into flames. This is an important point. It's like nobody was going to burn the Buddha's body. How can you how can you ever burn the Buddha's body? So it had to like just happen spontaneously. Um, his funeral pyre, let's see, and his sacred remains were divided into eight portions. This was like the most important part. One of them was given to the Mala clan of Kushinagara, the Mala clan of Papa, the Mahabulugu clan of the warrior class, and the Brahmins of Vishnu Dwipa, the Shakya clan, a couple of us, and the Lichavi clan of Vaishali. The Lichavis, by the way, included uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Vimalakirti. It's very mm -hmm. famous in uh, many ways in, this, in the Buddhist tradition. Was worshipped by the Beda clan and the Brahmin class in Magadha. The vase that held the Buddha's remains was given to the Brahmins, etc. The ashes from the pyre were taken by these guys. Uh, you know, the, the divvying up of the portions of the Buddha's uh, cremation was really a, a sort of momentous uh, achievement that they did this without having a huge war. Mm. And then it's like, where where did all those go? Where are they now? 2,500 years. Where are all these remains? What happened to them? I mean, they were the most precious thing in the world at that time. They uh, all went their separate ways and enshrined the great stupas of his canine teeth. How many canine teeth are there? Two? Four? Three? <laughs> the fourth was taken to the Naga domain by the Nagas. So gave, they gave one to the Nagas. The third... Uh, the king of the Rakshasas, the blood drinkers, demons of Kalinga, just like the Klingons. The second was given to Ajatashatra, the king of Magadha. He gets one of the teeth, that, that's appropriate. The king, the local king. Uh, this together with the relics that multiplied from it. So there's the tradition in, in Buddhism that relics of great beings like the Buddha, when you enshrine them properly, they multiply. They don't grow other teeth, but they grow other types of little relics. So you put like a little uh, relic on your shrine, and if you practice a lot and really well, you open it up years later and there's more. I promise. Guaranteed money back. Um, let's see. Uh, was enshrined in a stoop ornamented with blah, blah, blah. The relics were later brought with honor to Tibet and are said to preside at present in the white stupa at Samya, the first monastery. The first tooth of the four canine teeth was brought with honor by Indra to the Triya Strimsha abode, some other realm of the three realms. And this is from a sutra. Uh, 
of the uh, video transmission text. Skipping that, thus the portions of the remains, including the four teeth were kept, teeth were kept as objects of worship in different domains, particularly keeping this aspiration of previous life, lives and his miraculous abilities. The Buddhist king Ashoka, son of King Patala, took the seven portions left in our human world and on the Indian subcontinent and its surrounding regions, erected as many stupas as their grains and two handfuls of sand. These were said to be 10 million such stupas or chaitas. And this is what the fortunate aeon means by the Buddha's remains will continue to increase. The fortunate aeon is a text. And this is the first chapter, the classification of the histories concerning the teacher. And we're done a little bit early. Thoughts, comments, discussion? Imagine that it's time for discussion. So... I think I have one of Buddha's tooths in my car. See, <laughs> I thought it was my great majestic uncle Manny the Italian barber. It's his tooth, but really, it's Buddha's tooth. It's a good thing we don't take these things too seriously. <laughs> I was going to say such irreverence. Yeah. Well, my uncle was very important to me, even though he was a simple barber. So, uh, one of the uh, one of the teeth or a piece of some tooth is said to be in, in uh, Sri Lanka, in Kandy, this cool little town up in the hills in Kandy, in, in Sri Lanka, in the forests, and. Uh, it's a very famous temple because it's one of the few places that still like is identifiable as having a Buddha tooth or a piece of a tooth. And every year they do this big ceremony on the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and parinirvana, which they consider to all have happened on the same day, I believe. But in the full moon in May, they they take the tooth relic and its case cases, and they parade it around town with elephants. And, huge amount of uh, display. I happened to be there on one of those days. It was very cool, very fun. And on that day, that one day of the year, they let you see the tooth. And it's a big deal that they show the tooth once a year in that day. So you line up outside the temple, the tooth's temple and candy. And no, no jokes about like eating candy and teeth. <laughs> but, uh, and then they you finally you get to go in the inner sanctum and you look in the inner sanctum and there's <clears throat> there's this cool like glass dome and then in the glass dome there's like a stupa shaped thing and the tooth is supposedly inside something that's inside something that's inside something that's inside something that's inside that stupa. So I asked for my money back because you don't actually get to see the tooth, but you only get to see the little container that has about like seven layers of other containers in it but anyway for them it's like a huge deal to see the container for me the elephants was the best part but anyway any other comments on this way of presenting the life of the buddha as being this sort of cosmic way of presenting the life of the buddha the key aspects of which just to recount some of the key aspects are uh, like in this, in the life that we know him in, was he a, a normal human? 
or was he on one of the boomies? You know, was he was he highly advanced already? Was he on? Uh, uh, you know, was he already on like the ninth boomie or the tenth boomie? Or was he just a normal guy in the path of accumulation? And then that night, that famous night, did he achieve, you know, the remaining four paths? And then afterwards, was he, was his body still a, a normal human body susceptible to the karmas that all human bodies are susceptible to? Sickness and indigestion and tiredness and bad breath and things like that. Or was his body sort of divine at that point and beyond these things and uh, and then like you know all the teachings uh, where you have you have uh, millions of people who believe that they have all he taught in the in the uh, so-called Theravada countries the Southeast Asian countries they have a set of uh, books attributed to the Buddha as being the complete teachings of the Buddha. And they claim that all the Mahayana Sutras and all the Vajrayana Tantras are um, not authentic, are false, and are blasphemous, and not the teachings of the Buddha. And so these other texts start appearing hundreds of years after the Buddha's uh, Parinirvana and where did they come from? Who wrote them? Who had the gall to like write a book and then attribute it to the Buddha? Would you do that? Well, the- isn't that what all religions do? I mean, it sounds like the Trinity and Christ and he didn't write anything, but then, you know, and then the story gets modified. And maybe he appeared to people who wrote it down. Say again. Maybe the Buddha came and said, okay, here, I've got another sutra for you. Would you please write this down for me? That's possible. And we've, we've got the, the heuristic in the extraordinary Mahayana where it says, right, basically that these stories are all kind of, kind of all true and, you know, if the Buddha is manifesting as, as ordinary beings at all times and all places, then... If, if that's our notion of what Buddha is, right, not just this dude, but like the ultimate interpretation is, is just compassionate manifestation, then it seems less, it's less wild to then say that, okay, you know, the Prajnaparamita Sutras that were not written when Shakyamuni was alive, right, we can all agree on that. If we think Buddha is just the man, then we're in trouble. But if we, if, if, if our sense of Buddha is this, is this broader one, then it, it we can understand it in a way. So it's, it's not even false then to say like, the, the Mahayana Sutras are, are not from the Buddha. If the Buddha is just this like basic space of compassion that, that, that generates teachings or something. So how, how did he transmit the Mahayana Sutras then? Uh, manifesting as uh, enlight, you know, as Magarjuna, you know, who, yeah. who uh, perhaps drafted some of the Prajnaparamita Sutras were not, you know, or, or um, right. If, if the Buddha in innumerable ways as ordinary beings, you know, why not then you know there's no way to say right i mean it's 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 just it's 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 a better way to me it's a better way of thinking about it like the question of if the buddha write them is 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 totally irrelevant the question is do they lead to enlightenment and if the buddha is that compassionate manifestation of of wisdom that leads one to enlightenment then which is clearly he's saying here right the buddha 
you know, the ultimate interpretation is Buddha is primordial, primordial space that manifests, then, you know, I don't know, for me, that's nice. It, it, it makes the question moot. Right? If we have, if I have this cosmic sense of what a Buddha is, then I don't, I don't really care that the tantras were all written a thousand years later. But then does he appear as Christ? Does he appear as, you know, as other types of teachings in different traditions as well? Yeah, to I think so. I mean, that's, yeah, I think that's totally glossed within it. And, and even there's certain Buddhist sutras that, that say that, that specifically say like anything that accords with the Dharma is the Dharma, you know, and, 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 and there are wacky ones that say even things that don't accord with the Dharma are Dharma for, the, for some people, you know, like. Um, what are the, uh, to what, me, it's just channeling from Buddha fields, right? They're, they're in another, I don't want to, I don't like using physics terms because I have a minor in physics, but multiverse, right? The, the Buddha fields, they're channeling from that space. Right there, it's right in front of us. You just can't see it. What are the, we're, in, we're in the physical realm. <laughs> one of the interesting aspects of the whole thing is, uh, I'll say two things. One is that um, the so-called earliest teachings of the Buddha, the so-called authentic teachings of the Buddha, which are encapsulated in the, the Pali uh, Tripitaka that is replicated in... Uh, in uh, the language of Thailand and Burma and Cambodia and some other countries as being the authentic teachings of the Buddha, those were not written down for hundreds of years. And so, so uh, what makes them authentic? Well, maybe they were made up. You know, maybe they were made up and the Mahayana ones were the real ones and those other ones were made up. Uh, the other issue is something that Derek uh, mentioned is like, what does it matter as long as they lead to enlightenment? What does it matter who wrote them? So this is an interesting, very interesting issue that Long Chenpa will take up next week. I mean, he took it up years ago, but we will take up in what we read through next week, which is that uh, until you're enlightened, what texts are you going to rely upon? If there's all these texts attributed to the Buddha, and you say, well, it's only the ones that, well, as long as they lead to enlightenment, what's the, what's the issue? But none of us have been led to enlightenment yet. So does that disprove the authenticity of these teachings? And if it doesn't disprove the authenticity of them, then had, are, are they all of equal status in leading to enlightenment? Or are some... <clears throat> more effective at leading to enlightenment? And how do they relate, you know, are they more effective than the phone book? Does the phone book lead to enlightenment? How do we know that the Buddha's teachings, you know, if you're going to spend your life meditating on some set of instructions, which ones do you choose? So he'll take that up next week in this issue of like, what is Buddha word? There's this idea of, uh, you know, the, the Tibetans inherit all this literature. They get little pieces of the Pali canon. They don't get a whole lot, but they get little pieces, enough of it to get uh, a flavor of how different it is from the Mahayana Sutras and the Tantras. They get all these Mahayana Sutras and all these Tantras, thousands of different texts, and they're in this position of like, well, of analyzing them, and they disagree, you know. The, 
teachings on emptiness are radically different from the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and so forth, and, and karma and uh, positive accumulating positive karma. And uh, so, what do you rely upon in this issue of well, the, the teachings of the Buddha becomes like a very important concept, and they come up with this term Buddha Vachana, which is Sanskrit. Uh, but Buddha and then Vajna is speech. So Buddha's speech and anything attributed to the Buddha by the tradition and a thought author, uh, held to be authentic by the tradition, whatever that means, somehow needs to be uh, contended with, somehow needs to be reconciled with, either taken as being uh, complete, uh, uh, accurate and uh, authentic and um, ultimate or as some uh, sort of lower version of the teaching that you know and then why would the Buddha teach lower version teachings for what purpose anyway so we'll go into this all this next week in the Buddhist teachings chapter thank you everyone and let's dedicate the merit our various ways. And let's see. Here's the dedication of marriage, just in case. Bring this little gong here, even though you can't hear it. By this merit. May all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the ringed wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful evening, rest of your evening, and have a great week. And uh, see you next week, I hope. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, Thanks. Derek. Yeah. Thank you, Derek.